Ho, ho, ho! <laughs> it's Felix and Devin for you. From Sydney, Australia and Los Angeles, California. Just in time for Christmas. We've got a bunch of presents for you. Action-packed agenda as always. This time we are going to cover, as always, a bunch of insights, including this discussion around the SKO season. We'll be talking about enablement gurus. We have a bunch of articles that we have researched. The latest jobs. Book reviews are back as well. One of the audience favorites. We haven't covered that in the last couple of months just simply because we have been so insanely busy in our day jobs. We've got a couple of reports that we'll look at. Social Buzz, we'll be talking about the top five episodes of the State of Sales Enablement podcast of 2022. And we have a contributor, which is a AI system called ChatGPT. A little bit of a surprise for you coming on that front. But let me not forget to introduce Devin to you. Devin, how are you today? I am wonderful. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? We have this month in sales enablement. We have the holidays. It's a beautiful thing. But January 1st is creeping up way too fast. And I feel like I use that as my deadline for everything. And I'm a little concerned, but it's going to be okay. <laughs> are you at least able to take some time off this year? I am. I'm taking a few days off between Christmas and New Year's to decompress and then prep for a wild 2023. Uh, awesome. How about you? Awesome. Uh, well, I, I've just come back from holidays. I've been to Tasmania. So as some of you might know, I'm based in just outside of Sydney, Australia. So I have my mom over from Germany and we went to Tasmania. For those of you who are not familiar, Tasmania is a little island that's part of Australia in the very south. And it's kind of a mix of, I would say, Australia, New Zealand, and Ireland, if that makes sense. Ooh. Rolling hills, spectacular landscape, beautiful spot of the country. We drove around there. So I'm, yeah, I'm coming back all relaxed. But to be honest, I needed <laughs> it. I've pulled like yeah. a few 18-hour days before I went on holidays just to get this course that I've been working on out of the door. So... Yeah, it's been about time, but enough of my holidays. Let's dive right into this month in sales enablement. We are going to wrap up the year that is 2022 with a bang. We have SKO season coming up, which is probably causing a few sleepless nights just before people are going on holidays. SKOs, something that I personally in my enablement roles didn't have too much to do with. Luckily, oh. like I had some sort of involvement in defining the agenda and also being involved in presentations, but the actual organization was luckily either handled by overseas teams or by marketing as well. Interesting. Yeah, that's right. But that was also over 10 years ago, so things might have changed since then. <laughs> I'm really curious to ask you, Devin, from your point of view, SKOs in the sales enablement context and in the context of enablement strategy, like what is these days really the point of SKOs and what are we trying to achieve as enablers with SKOs? Yeah. So this is my first year not planning for or delivering a SCO in ages. So it's pretty wild, which is why I can actually take some of next week off. But next year we're back in the game. So I have to stay on top of all of my trends. But in a nutshell, I think the sentiment or the why behind SCO is the same for me now and in 2023, which is to motivate, inspire, align, and in some cases, hitting the reset button for your organization and providing that moment or that milestone to say, hey, we're taking a step back or we're taking a step forward and we're realigning our, our goals and objectives. But more often than not, these events include all of your revenue teams, even if you're not running revenue enablement. 
so often you have customer success, sales, marketing to your point, and other groups in the organization. So you really want to use this opportunity for alignment. If you have everyone in a room together, and one of the big trends for SCO 2023 is in-person events, right? They're coming back. And so really making sure you're using that opportunity to practice, drive peer learning, knowledge sharing, stories from the field, executing on great handoffs, wins, challenges, like everything that we try to do in our virtual environments, but using this opportunity to really drive that collaborative execution and to show folks great examples. You also want to make sure that you're priming folks with essential information in advance of the event. So you want to make sure that you have a plan to not only deliver great content and a great experience, but ensure that you're reinforcing what you're covering there when everyone's back in their home offices. So again, really maximizing, if you're lucky enough, the in-person time you have to practice, apply skills, workshop, align, all of those things that we know are so important to drive an incredible customer experience and customer journey. But something else I think on the enablement side that we can really lean into is giving folks or you know folks in, on the ground, your sales team, your customer success team, a platform and a voice to engage. So something that I love to do and I think is super important is bringing in your stars from the field to lead sessions, to facilitate workshops. And again, making sure that yes, like SCO is a moment in time, but that you are building in a plan coming out of those workshops for long-term reinforcement, knowledge building, and more. I think, and this is nothing profound, but you know my point of view on sales boot camps. They're fine if they exist in the context of a more robust holistic program. The same is true for a SCO or a sales kickoff. It is a moment in time. It is not a massive change management effort. It can be part of something bigger. And so it's always important to keep that in mind as you're planning, as you're aligning your cross-functional teams, as you're aligning leadership. And I think the other thing that's really important is to not try to cram every single topic and thing that you can into this event, which happens so often. And I have some horror stories I'm happy to share. But that's my point of view on some of those essential moments that enablement can help drive and to really make sure if you are together in person, you are maximizing the heck out of that cross-functional alignment and practice time. Yeah, awesome. I think from my experience working with enablers in my consulting business, something that comes up over and over again as some of the key benefits that are being mentioned is that SKOs are essentially self-engagement on steroids. So you can really utilize that face-to-face time. And especially if you're a decentralized team getting together and really fostering that engagement, I think that's the biggest opportunity missed typically of not taking advantage of that potential for engagement and really making it interactive and creating an environment where people that should be connected can actually connect. I think the worst case scenario for an SKO is that you basically set it up like a broadcast. Right. People are just sitting there all day, just listening to presentations, applaud every now and then. And then at the end of the day, they go home. I think that's the worst case scenarios. Best case scenario, highly engaging, very interactive workshops. And then as you mentioned, I think the mistake that I see being made in sales organizations on a macro level mm-hmm. from a reinforcement point of view or the lack of reinforcement within the enablement space is also being done on an SKO level in those same organizations. So the same organizations then also don't follow up after the SKO and to make sure that the content is really being internalized and right. managers refer back to the lessons being discussed at the SKO, you know, top performers who weren't featured and so on. So I think there's a lot of 
missed opportunity I see being made, considering the sort of budgets that are often allocated. So I guess for anybody listening, still get the opportunity to shape their upcoming event. This is probably something to consider. But Devin, I also have another question for you. What are some of the ways you can think of to run an engaging SKO with little or no budget? Because that's something that also comes up over and over again in my conversation with enablers. Yeah, you can do a little with a lot, right? And I think we've all been in the situation where they're like, your budget is zero or it's not enough to do anything powerful. So I like to use an expression that I have borrowed from one of my sales leaders, which is bring the bus, bring leadership, cross-functional players, leverage relationships in your ELT or board members. You can oftentimes find great speakers and great presenters that are going to do a favor for someone on your leadership team or on your board. So start there. If you, again, want to bring someone in, work your connections, but also leverage your executive leadership team. At one of my companies where we didn't have a huge budget, we had an incredible head of sales. This was our CRO, actually. And people respected him. He was incredibly well-spoken, very articulate, very compelling, but also like a hands-on sales pro. And anytime he presented or spoke, our team just ate up every single word he said, but they had very little access to him throughout the year. So we actually had him lead a number of hands-on sessions. We had stars from each of our teams share successes in front of him. He did an AMA. He really like rolled up his sleeves and got into the trenches with the team. We spent hours in those sessions and they were some of the best rated SCO sessions we've ever led. So not an external speaker, nothing super fancy, but it was real tips from a seasoned pro that was so exciting to see. Also use your team, celebrate their wins. So with no budget, we had our teams record like quick, like 60, 90 second videos of like their why or their biggest accomplishment or what they're most proud of. And we played those throughout the event. We also had, this was in person, but a massive like poster board with post-its and folks could share like their why in the context of our company values. So it was a great opportunity to drive alignment, get people excited, but really lean into your team. Again, I, I mentioned this earlier, but stories from the trenches, best examples of how folks have collaborated. Those real world experiences are so valuable and they can be super interactive, don't cost a lot of money. I mean, you can buy a package of construction paper and some markers and do some really cool live hands-on exercises. So you don't necessarily have to have the flashy speaker and also ask your teams what they want. So I always do a pre and post SCO event survey. What are you looking for? What are your hopes and dreams? Do you even care about swag? And so I think so often when you have a little budget, you're like, we got to get everybody t-shirts. They got to get the water bottles. Most people don't care about that. And so ask them what they want. Focus your spend on the things that are really going to make a difference and get creative. You have a lot of really smart and talented people in your organization. Source ideas, bring the bus, but really make sure you're focusing that time on the collaboration, the workshopping, the peer learning, anything that you really can't do when you're sitting, can't do as effectively, let me say, when you're sitting behind your computer. Got it. So we have Peter Cutler commenting, looking at doing first SKO since COVID. I have no budget trying to figure out what the budget will be. So I think a few useful tips here, not only for Peter, but also for everybody who's working on a tight budget. Let me ask you, who has been the most famous guest speaker you had at an SKO? Any famous names we should be aware of? Yes. We had Angela Duckworth at our last SCO. She was phenomenal. I'm obsessed with her. And the pre-SCO prep was probably the most exciting moment of my last year. 
highly recommend it. If you have a, a great budget, bring Angela. She's a star, obviously. And then we had Matthew Dixon join us, which was awesome, of the Challenger sale. Okay, awesome, awesome. There were some good ones. But honestly, some of the best speakers were folks that led our storytelling sessions and presentation skills sessions. And those are the ones that have left a pretty meaningful impact on our teams. And they did not command a huge salary, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think from what I hear, I'm connected to a lot of people organizing fairly big events in sales and marketing here in Australia. And yeah. feedback has consistently been whenever they try to bring somebody with a Hollywood famous name, lots of money, but not a lot of return and yeah. not such great audience feedback. You know, it might sell some tickets if it's a paid event, of course, not SKO, but I think it's better to focus on the content and the quality of the content and the relevance rather than the big names. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it depends on the purpose. What are you trying to drive? Like, what does your team need right now? Is it that inspiration and motivation? Is it, you know, for us, it was like to build grit and to really lean into change. And so it really also depends on where you're headed and what your theme is and, and what you want your next year to be all about. But I, I couldn't agree more. Well, let's move on and talk about a topic that has recently come up in one of the coaching sessions that I've been running. So uh, as I mentioned before, I'm, I've started this online course through my business together with Mike Kunkel. And as part of that, we also run coaching sessions with anybody who's signed up and lots of great insights. And it's the sort of stuff that I'm loving about it, those sort of insights of everybody's roles and everybody's businesses. And one of the things that came up in those conversations which was in part surprising and not surprising at the same time. Mm. The person that we spoke to was a really experienced enabler. So we're talking 20 years of enablement experience, extremely senior, managing a big team. And he shared that he felt a bit insecure about all those 20-something-year-olds, gurus, especially on LinkedIn, sharing their insights, all the amazing things that they're doing. And he just seems to be just doing his day job and not getting a lot of digital applause in the form of likes and comments. And I think there's an interesting dynamic taking place at the moment. Also, a bit of a divide appearing between the people that have a loud voice and the people that might not be as active on social media, but being true experts, which is in itself a bit of a topic that is almost a bit meta to our conversation here, because we've appeared on influencer lists before, and some might consider us influencers in the enablement space, whereas I think it's a bit of a silly term in the, yeah, yeah. In the B2B sense. And I certainly won't be doing any teeth whitening endorsements anytime soon, but <laughs> you never know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. But my question to you, Devin, when you are on social media and when you're generally engaged with the enablement community, how do you decide which voices in the enablement space to trust? Because I think it's safe to say that the loudest voice isn't always the voice with the most expertise. Yeah. And frankly, I struggle with this as well. It is hard to find the time to share your insights and your thoughts while you're trying to do your job. So I think you nailed it. The loudest voices get the most attention. I personally follow almost every enablement person that I come across because I love to hear different perspectives. I love to hear different points of view. I think I was telling you earlier, Felix, I also love to meet with other enablers and just talk one-on-one -on -one and learn like, what are you doing? What's cool? What's interesting? And try to share those insights and learn. But when it comes to defining the enablement function and what is the best way and the perfect way, I do take a lot of what I read and what I see with a grain of salt. And again, a lot of it, there's a lot of value in what's shared. And, and again, it's not because people don't have the credibility to be that definitive expert, but 
I try to really lean into the folks whose books that I've read, podcasts that I've listened to in some cases, if I've seen somebody present at a conference, if I've presented with them before, and others who are celebrated by some of those big names, the researchers, the folks that, again, are documenting and trying to standardize some of these best practices. And so that's really where I try to focus. I love to look at insights that are data-backed, that are driven by research, which is why you and I spend so much time on these reports every month. But it is really challenging. I want to believe everything I read is right and accurate, but I also try to say, does this person have a proven track record? Is this person trying to be helpful? Are they trying to tell me that everything I'm doing is wrong? But I don't have a great answer because this is something that I struggle with as well. So so that's the philosophy I follow. I try to follow the folks that are well-researched, well-published, that have the data and experience to back a lot of what they're saying. But it's hard to decipher. So what's your take on it? Yeah, I think it comes down to similarly how you would assess the credibility of a research report. I think it also, you have to apply the same rules when assessing the credibility of experts that are out there. And it all comes down to the quality of the data source, right? And I think in the context of professionals and professional voices, the data source is the experience people have and the track record that people have. Because there's lots of opinions out there. Yeah. And I think oftentimes opinions are confused for facts or factual advice. Exactly. I think the biggest proof is always the results that have been generated and also the track record of the person, you know. So I think there's been a few cases where I have come across mind-boggling advice on social media. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even being called out by people commenting on it, which just really astounds me. Yeah. I think credibility of the data source and something to be aware of is just the biases that we all internalize and that we're dealing with. Yeah. And I think one of the biases is that if somebody posts a lot of content, if somebody gets a lot of likes, they're automatically an expert. And, right. you know, it's just that social proof, I guess, that people receive. But yeah, I think it's important to be aware of those biases that we all have and that we all deal with and not take everything at gospel and be really selective about the data sources and not really follow any advice that's floating around out there. Yeah. As you said, there's people with proven track records, there's people that have published books that are really based on research data. And I think those are the safe sources, which is not to say, or I don't want to discount the opportunity for young professionals and newbies to share advice because yes. they all have experience and they all have their own experience that they can share. And as soon as you have two days in your job under the belt, you already have one more day under your belt than somebody else, right? which can help somebody. So I think that sort of advice can be helpful to somebody who's more junior, to somebody who doesn't have as much experience. So I don't want to discount that, but I wouldn't base my sales strategy on advice of somebody random on LinkedIn who's just very vocal and doesn't really have the track record to back it up. So. Right. This is my take on it. No, it makes sense. And I know we've talked about the echo chamber before as well. So you see those likes, you see those comments, well, it must be right. And then it's everybody being like, yes, totally. And you're like, is it? Should I try it? Where do I spend my time? So I, I couldn't agree more. That's right. That's right. Well, a bit of a change of pace because we have a couple of articles that we want to take a look at. And Devin, you're running the show here. You've picked a couple of awesome articles out. Which one have you picked out this month? Oh, let's start with the false traits of leadership potential. This one was very interesting. So 
I think we all know how important strong, capable, and competent leaders are to the success of an enablement function. We talk about this a lot in the context of stakeholder management and strategy setting, but this is an article from FastCo, which examines some essential competencies, behaviors, and attributes that define great leaders, but more importantly, they shine some light on those classic leadership traits, which are really just red flags in disguise. I love unpacking red flags, so let's get into it. The abstract of the article is that it's quite difficult to accurately assess whether a potential candidate has the necessary qualities to make a great leader. And this is mainly because necessary traits that we would need in a leader are not always easily observed. And this is because whether interviews are the right forum for that or because the decision makers in some cases actually need to have the same or similar skill sets to the folks that they're interviewing. So I thought of the expression, you know, it takes one to know one. How do we know this person embodies these skills? It's because I can see it and relate to it. So the implication here is that it's so much easier to find leaders who are confident and charismatic versus leaders who are competent and skilled. So the example that the article highlighted, which I thought was spot on, is a presidential election. So choosing the right leader for a country based on what we see on TV, an interview, a debate. In this scenario, our brains are going to focus on the things we know to be true and very heavily lean into our instincts, which in turn rely on some of those false indicators to inform the decisions that we make. So a few studies that were cited in the article state that over half of leaders fail to deliver results, while almost 65% are unable to motivate their employees. That's a big problem. If we go back to the political example, this is why approval ratings for many elected leaders are consistently stuck between 30 and 40%, because we were kind of swayed by things that didn't really impact the work they were able to do. So how do we stop being fooled by these false traits and stop making bad decisions when it comes to selecting and hiring leaders? Rather than blowing up how hiring executive leaders works, I have so many opinions on this, Felix. We should set up another podcast to talk about it. I think we can start by identifying some of the qualities that we instinctively lean towards when we select these problematic leaders, if you will. So the main ones here, confidence, aggression, status, charisma, and narcissism. With confidence, it's pretty clear. The more confident or overconfident and sometimes deluded someone is, the more likely it is that others are going to see this person as a leader. So think here, lots of ego, not a lot of self-awareness. When it comes to aggression, these are folks who get ahead through bravado, over-assertiveness, overconfidence in some cases, who are unlikely to have compassion for their colleagues once they actually step into that role. With status and privilege, this one, it's the old boys club. So if I can quote the article verbatim, if you belong to the in-group, you're going to stand a greater chance to be perceived and legitimized as a leader. And these stereotypes continue to cloud people's perceptions of your performance once you're in charge. Charisma, not all bad, right? But if it's coupled with the wrong traits, some of the things we're talking about here, or if someone uses it for selfish purposes, it can be super toxic. And finally, everyone's least favorite one, narcissism. Now, we love people who celebrate themselves. And in enablement, we know like we have to be our biggest cheerleader. But a little humility is important. And there's definitely a, a negative correlation between how narcissistic someone is and how they perform as a leader. So the article calls out Elon Musk here, which I think we can all agree upon. And the moral of the story in the article is 
We need to assess and hire leaders based on real confidence and traits that actually make a difference, like humility and integrity. And if we start to move in that direction and start to recognize some of these red flags as we're hiring folks in leadership positions, we will certainly start to see some powerful improvements in how a leader can positively impact an organization and selfishly for us, the enablement function, but really the business overall. So this one I I thought was incredibly interesting because I may have experienced some leaders who uh, fit into this category, but Felix, have you ever been part of an organization with a leader who maybe embodied some of these traits? And if yes, what was that experience like? Well, I think as an employee, I've only been part of organizations that had leaders that embodied some of those traits. Yeah. Like over the years, I've come to realize that there's really those two levels of actual leadership competency, which is science-backed, data-backed, and something that is counterintuitive versus the intuitive kind of leadership that causes people to be promoted into leadership roles that just seem to be leaders or being assessed as leaders without real evidence. Like the sort of traits that you called out, the self-confidence and so on. I actually read a research piece once that was talking about the correlation between the height of a person and their likelihood of being promoted into leadership positions. (laughs) Interesting. Send me that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a certain almost primal instincts when it comes to choosing leaders that speaks to our primal instincts of what makes a leader, you know, like it's that loud person, that confident person that has the potential to lead us through adversity. But I do think in the modern ages, in a business context, we really need to be aware, again, of those biases that we're dealing with. We talked about that earlier as well, but those biases that cause us to consider somebody to be a leader, even though they might not necessarily be. So Those leadership traits, I think we really need to be analytical about and be proactive about assessing what those leadership skills are. And having received leadership training myself, so I attended a few awesome leadership courses that I still benefit from today. And those sort of courses also teach aspiring leaders the sort of behaviors that you need to exhibit to actually improve performance of your team. I think it's the same problem that we talk about over and over again in the sales context of high-performing sellers being promoted into sales managerial positions. Yeah. Just because your technical skill is good on paper doesn't mean that it can be replicated by your team or that you are good at leading a team. The article is spot on. I think there's lots of red flags out there that feed into those biases that we're all dealing with. And yeah, certainly when you are applying for a role, probably something to be aware of when talking to your manager or your potential manager and also when hiring a team and wanting to hire a team that actually has the potential to be future leaders. That's also something to be aware of. So thank you so much for picking that article out. But we do have another one as well. Yes. Which is, should you fire a bad hire? And obviously that is quite timely considering all the redundancies that are going on at the moment. And a lot of sales enablement teams have to make tough decisions on cutting staff. So what's going on there, Devin? What's that article all about? This is an interesting one from HBR and HBR Ascend. And what we're covering is an abridged version of a longer article. But as an elder millennial who watches all of her TikToks on Instagram, I'm happy to read and report on the abridged article that HBR served into my feed. 
So the article starts with the provocation, should you fire a bad hire? And we all know this, even if you run a perfect employee search, there's still a chance you're not going to get it right. And that could be for a number of reasons. Maybe some human beings are unique and quirky and flawed. Most of us are. Or maybe they're just not the right person to thrive at your company in the specific role or in your team's unique environment. So the article gives managers a couple of methods and tips to assess the current state before making that decision. To start, they suggest that the hiring manager needs to do some self-reflection before moving to fire that new employee. So ensure that you set very clear expectations for this person, validate whether this new hire was given the right tools to be successful, and confirm that as the hiring manager, you were fully available for your employee for coaching, development, and everything in between. If the answers to those questions are no, that you didn't provide those right parameters for success, it might be time to reevaluate your original assessment and confirm that you've in fact built the right environment and conditions for this person to be successful. Next, they recommend that as the hiring manager, you should talk to a mentor or an advisor to make sure that you're gathering objective opinions and, and hopefully some actionable feedback on your best path forward. And while the hiring manager, as we know, is responsible for making that final call, it is always important to gut check with trusted leaders. And don't forget to let your manager know and your HR business partner, if you have one, because you're going to want them to weigh in with some advice and you don't want to catch them off guard by being the person who lets somebody go before they hit 90 days. It's a big deal. And those folks, your HR business partner, your manager, will also likely be the ones to support the implementation of a performance plan if necessary, which should be a natural part of your kit in that process. Finally, check your gut feeling and confirm the facts. If your new hire is struggling time after time, after guided support, after training and development opportunities, after role clarity and checking all those other boxes, the article suggests you ask yourself a couple of questions. If your team was entirely made up of folks with the same skills as this person, how would you feel? Would they be effective? And if this new hire quit tomorrow, would you feel relieved? And if the answer to that is yes, then you know what needs to be done. I have unfortunately been in this situation as a hiring manager and had to make some very difficult calls. And I have to say it is probably one of the worst things to have to do as a people manager. All you want is for this new person to be successful. And it it really feels like a personal, professional, and sometimes like a life failure, which stinks. So I thought this article was great. Again, some quick tips to gut check. Make sure you're setting yourself and your new hire up for success. But Felix, have you ever had to let somebody go within their first 90 days? And if so, did you follow any of the tips in the article? No, I didn't actually. I think before I became a hiring manager, I have seen my managers having to make tough decisions in terms of letting some of my teammates go. And I think that sort of insight made me very paranoid about that process <laughs> very early, Yeah, which then caused me in turn being ultra diligent when hiring people almost excessively. Yeah. I think that had stopped me from hiring bad people in the past. Again, lucky because yeah. I think there's still people that can be excellent at interviewing and really navigate that process well, and then turn out to be a bad hire. But yeah, I was really lucky in never having to actually do that. Good. But I think the only way to avoid those sort of bad hiring decisions, and it also comes down to the sort of organizations that you're dealing with and how much time you are given to hire people. But if you have the opportunity, my advice would be to be very diligent in 
not only interviewing people, but also as much as possible in actually testing for skills and letting people not only talk about the skills that they have, but also display the skills that they have, because yeah. that's where people typically start to crumble. And not only in the sales enablement environment, but also in a sales environment, also a, a big one for sales teams when they hire. A lot of times sellers are only asked to talk about the experience and talk about their sales skills, but more often than not, they are not being asked to actually participate in role plays and mm -hmm. actually show what they can do. And I think considering the amount of times that I've witnessed where sales people that have looked good on paper have actually crumbled in those sort of role play scenarios, I think it really was an aha moment for me and really made me realize that you have to test for those skills rather than just talk about it. So yeah. that's my advice to me. But again, I think some... Great tips in there. I know that in the US, you have much more freedom as an employer in terms of letting people go than you do in other parts of the world. So mm -hmm. it's probably also for any enablers that aren't hiring managers, an article worth reading just to be aware of the sort of processes that should be taking place, mm -hmm. maybe a possibility to manage upwards if you feel like there's any sort of doubt about your role. So thanks again, Devin, for picking that article out. Yeah. So the next one up in our agenda is the Sales Enablement Jobs with Stephanie Sorabian. Please make sure to check out her posts on LinkedIn. So Stephanie Sorabian, she posts weekly, typically the latest Sales Enablement Jobs. But I just saw this week there were actually so many jobs going around that she did two posts, so that should all make us wow. excited. And particularly considering the ratio between remote hybrid and on-site sales enablement jobs. There seems to be a whole lot of remote sales enablement jobs going at the moment. So it should make anybody looking for their next awesome sales enablement role confident and excited about looking for a job. Lots of roles out there. And as far as I can see, looking at some of the names in the mix, also some awesome hiring managers. So please check out Stephanie Zarabian's job board, which is also featured, by the way, in the This Month in Sales Enablement newsletter, which goes out every month after the show with all the resources that we're featuring, including the articles, links to the book reviews, and so on. So please make sure to subscribe if you want to stay up to date and also receive all the resources that we feature as part of this show. Speaking of book reviews, we have a couple this month, and to kick things off, we have a book called The First 90 Days, which Devin will talk us through. All right, so let's dig into The First 90 Days by Michael D. Watkins. So I read this book years ago. It was gifted to me by a former manager as I was about to take on a leadership position at the company we were at together. And I wish I had decided to reread it before I started my most recent role because so many of the ideas and tactics from this book would have served me well and saved me a lot of time. So if you are someone who is currently interviewing for a new role, moving it laterally in your organization, taking on a leadership position, or starting somewhere as a brand new program or people leader, this book is for you. Just throw it in your Amazon cart, go to your local bookstore and buy it. The book opens with a challenge. It says the president of the United States gets 100 days to prove himself, you get 90, and the actions you take during those first three months will determine if you succeed or fail. No pressure or anything, but we know, like, we know the first 90 days in a role is critical, and it's critical in defining your path forward. So 
Michael covers how to tackle the balance of being methodical in your research and planning during that initial 90-day period, while also focusing on delivering the low-hanging fruit or the quick wins that we know we need to do to prove ourselves. So I think the best part is how much practical value this book offers to help kickstart anyone who finds themselves in a new role. There are templates. You know I love a template, best practices, methodologies, and other resources that are designed to help you make a meaningful impact and build the right relationships from day one. The moral of the story, the TLDR, whatever you want to call it, is that you were hired into your role for a reason, right? But If you think that you can find success by replicating your tried and true playbook verbatim in your new environment, you are in for a rude awakening. And I I think it's human nature, right? But the first 90 days, it's going to help you become highly effective in your next adventure because it focuses on the essential things that are necessary to set yourself and your organization up for success via a strategy for learning how to learn. And Michael unpacks this in great detail, but basically it covers a path of questions, experiences, relationships, and planning that you need to build a solid foundation to grow from. For example, the author covers best practices for learning, which again, learning about your organization and interviewing folks in your new organization to reduce bias, very quickly uncover trends, and focus on active listening, and more importantly, meaningful follow-up to drive alignment. So I think for all of us, you start a new job, you typically have a list of questions that you ask anybody that you're meeting with. But Michael puts great structure around that process, again, to drive those actionable results. So he recommends that you create that standard list of questions, but keep it very firm and ask those questions in the same order to each person and cohort that you meet with, especially your direct reports and your cross-functional partners. Again, eliminating bias, identifying common themes, but also looking at what are some of the environmental influences that are driving these responses? What are the personality traits of the people that you're interviewing? Who are your rejectors? Who are your acceptors? This helps to give you a really clear sense of the current state of a new environment and a new business. And going a step further, he says, take all those findings, synthesize them, and deliver them back to the group that you're talking to. And the example he gives is the direct reports to show them like, here's what I found, here's what I've heard, here are the trends, these are your words, and we're gonna use them to shape a meaningful business strategy. But something that I really liked as a sales enablement folks, the approach outlined in this book felt very similar to how we approach sales enablement. You have your playbooks, frameworks, best practices, processes that our reps use, right? Those standard toolkits are only as effective as the research and discovery our rep needs to conduct in order to deliver like a turbo customized experience to a prospect. Same is true for new hires in an organization. You might have your tried and true approach for success, but you need to conduct discovery and research to really understand how to customize that plan for your new business, gain buy-in from your stakeholders, which we know can be challenging, and win over hearts and minds. Mike also covers some more challenging situations like being promoted, to supervising former peers, which can be incredibly challenging. He also gives tips for running processes that help with effective planning. He also gives tips, which I loved, for moving into a new role at the same company you're in and really balancing that transition so you're not doing two jobs and completely losing your mind. So many great steps that he lays out to ensure you are thoughtful in adapting your approach to your organization without being disruptive. He has something called the four pillars of effective onboarding, which include business orientation, stakeholder connection, alignment of expectations, and cultural adaptation of what you're doing. 
The key takeaway for me is the approach to learning. Michael advises that you make a plan to learn, establish your own learning path, and through that, build alignment, insight, and consensus rather than rushing into action. And again, if you find yourself too busy to learn in your new organization or in that new role, you're at risk of getting locked into a vicious cycle of knee-jerk reactions, making assumptions, making people angry, and making poor decisions, which can hurt your credibility. And in the long term, you'll be less prepared to deal with bigger problems down the line. I started a new job a few months ago, as we've talked about on this podcast, and it was a wild experience. I inherited a new team from various other teams in the organization, all used to a certain way of working and doing things. And even though I knew the best practices that we should be delivering and implementing, I came in really hot. And I was like, here are all the things we're going to do. And I was like, hold on, I had to backpedal, take some time, understand the business, understand the different teams and the different cultures on the teams that my team came from, and really learn how to best partner with them to build the best enablement practice possible. So many other stories to share, but the bottom line here is to set yourself up for success in your first 90 days, identify your learning agenda, define the questions you ask, set your hypothesis, find the best places in the business to extract insights, align with those stakeholders, especially your cross-functional partners, document actionable insights that will in turn help you make better decisions, and really spend the time to understand the business that you are moving into. Bottom line here, I'm going to highly recommend this book to anybody that, again, is jumping into a new role, taking on a leadership position. It's something that you will keep on your bookshelf, reference often. I keep it next to my desk right now because I want to make sure I don't make any of the same mistakes I've made before. But again, buy this book. You will not regret it. That's awesome. Sounds like it's jam-packed with insights and a lot of useful advice. I really liked what you were saying about the comparison between the first 100 days of the president versus your first 90 days. Yes. I think that's something that is underestimated oftentimes, also in terms of stakeholder management. I think when you're starting a new job, of course, it's challenging, but it's also a massive opportunity to actually create an impression and create a greater impression across your stakeholder landscape, because people oftentimes don't know you and don't know your work. And if you hit the ground running and really make an impact early, I think that's where you can actually get people on board and create a positive opinion poll, so to speak, of people supporting you and making your life easier in your job. So it really resonated with me, and I'll make sure to add that one to my reading list over Christmas. <laughs> nice. You're going to love it. <laughs> Some light reading to discuss with the family over Christmas dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I might keep that one on my Audible. Yeah. <laughs> Which version did you reach? Physical copy, Kindle, or Audible? So I referenced, this is my physical copy that was gifted to me, but I did the audiobook for this one. Okay. Okay. Awesome. I'd recommend the hard copy yeah. is what I'm going to say. For my reread, I audiobooked it, but I'd go for the hard copy. Again, there's so many great frameworks, mm. insights that you can pull. They reference figures in the book throughout the audiobook. So like, get the book. Yeah. 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 Now, it sounds to me like it's a resource that you can go back to. Without a doubt. Yeah. I typically find that books that are positioned as a resource that you want to tap into here and there are always best consumed in a hard copy so you can easily pick them up and check your notes. We've got another book in the mix called The Effortless Experience. And again, there was a book that came up in the conversation of one of our coaching calls recommended by Mike Kunkel. And The Effortless Experience is a book by Matthew Dixon and Nick Tolman and Rick DeLisi. 
those authors have a lot of experience in consulting, but also in terms of research. So they, they've combined their quantitative research insights combined with their qualitative insights from their consulting work and really observed what really makes an effortless customer experience and why it really matters to offer an effortless experience. And they have looked at data across B2C and B2B. So I think it's safe to say that a lot of the things that they cover in this book are universal truths for all kinds of customers across B2B and B2C. And what they were looking at was what actually causes loyalty or disloyalty. We all know those stories around extraordinary customer experiences with very personalized treatments and staff going above and beyond to avoid a disaster for a customer. Or they shared an example of a hotel chain that went on the hunt for a stuffed animal that a child has lost and then sent it back with uh, photos of the stuffed animal having a great experience in the hotel, in the spa, at the buffet, and so on. And then together with a personalized note by the CEO, sent that back to the child in a package. And of course, the parents have shared that on social media. But the bottom line of that story that they shared was that a great customer experience doesn't really cause increased loyalty, but it is there to mitigate disloyalty. And the one key insight that they shared in this book was that customers don't really have such high expectations. They don't expect you to go above and beyond, and which would cause them to actually stay more loyal to your business. But all they expect is you to deliver what you promise to deliver and provide a customer service that helps you achieve that, right? So that means any sort of customer service interactions or customer success interactions are typically designed to just deliver what the customer set out to achieve by engaging your company, right? And any sort of interactions with customer success are also designed to mitigate any sort of issues. So the best customer success or customer service organizations can do is just to make sure that the customer actually receives the service they thought they purchased, right? And the book then goes in a whole lot of detail and provides a whole lot of data points around what actually makes that sort of interaction with customer success effortless. Some of the points that they mentioned here was that channel switching is a big one. So the fewer channels a customer needs to engage in order to receive the support that they need to receive the service or the product or use the product that they set out to use, the less channels that they use, the better, right? So that means you should avoid sending customers through your self-help center, then through your chat, and then through your telephone support. And that is typically what constitutes a high effort experience where people, even though they might receive what they set out to receive, they would still consider it to be a high effort exercise, which really makes them feel negatively about the interaction, which then in turn makes them more likely to leave your business sooner or later and possibly deal with a competitor. So another insight based on that would be that it's more important how the customer actually feels about the experience rather than what they actually have to do to fix the issue. So there can be scenarios where customers really quickly deal with the rep, receive the advice that they receive. They might have to do a lot of work to actually resolve the issues, but because it was easy to receive that advice, they still feel positively about the experience and feel positively about the interaction. So I don't want to spoil any more of this book, but 
I think based on what we discussed earlier about the quality of the data source, I think this book has a really high quality data source with those authors and the sort of research that they have conducted. I think any enabler that also has customer success and customer support under the remit will greatly benefit from this book and receive a lot of insight into universal truths that we can all benefit from. And on top of that, I also think that any sort of enablers that deals with account management teams can also benefit from that when account managers are involved in servicing customers and resolving issues. I think a whole lot of gold in there. It's also very easy to consume. You would almost say effortless <laughs> in the way that it's written. So a whole lot of examples being provided without adding bloat to the whole book. They still stay to the point. I listened to the audiobook version. I think uh, somebody who might use that day-to-day -day in their job might, again, benefit from the physical copy. I personally can highly recommend it. I would give it five out of five stars. Yeah, highly recommend it. The effortless experience, please put it on your reading list if you are dealing with customer success or with account management teams. Highly recommend it for sure. I will be adding this to my cart right now. <laughs> okay, awesome. Okay, so let us move on. We are almost running out of time. I think we'll skip the reports this month and share them as part of the This Month in Sales Enablement newsletter instead. So there are a couple of ones just to let everybody know. They were both from Sales Enablement Pro, one talking about compensation, career pathing, and diversity and inclusion and enablement. Could definitely recommend that one. And then we also had the Sales Enablement Pro Sales Enablement Maturity Report 2022. So if you're interested in those reports, please make sure to sign up to the newsletter. And just to wrap things off, I just want to share the top five episodes of the State of Sales Enablement this year. For anybody who is looking for a podcast to listen to over the Christmas break, those episodes might be worth considering. So on number five, we had Sales Development Excellence with Mark McInnes. He is a consultant from Australia, specialized in the sales development space. So lots of great insights there. Also a few controversial opinions, but I will let you decide whether you agree or not. So Mark was an interview guest there. Greatly recommend it. On number four, we had Strategic Talent Development with Roderick Jefferson. So Roderick, always a popular podcast guest, extremely experienced, an amazing track record. Probably the only other person I can think of who has a track record like that would be Michael Jordan. So <laughs> definitely tune into that one if you are interested in strategic talent development. On number three, we had a episode of This Month in Sales Enablement. What? Ooh. Amazing. We made it. <laughs> it was the This Month in Sales Enablement May edition titled Why New Highest Cry, Fixing Sales Development and Books Worth Reading. So the familiar format with insights, book reviews, and opinions. So make sure you listen to that one. And then on number two, we had Devin what? with Effective Stakeholder Management. That was the first time Devin appeared on this podcast. And I actually wasn't aware that Devin's episode was number two. So it was an intuitive decision to invite Devin to join this month in Sales Enablement. So Devin, Amazing. thanks for making my podcast famous. Really appreciate it. And <laughs> Also really goes to show that stakeholder management is really a topic that a lot of enablers are interested in learning more about. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, please make sure to listen to that episode. And then on number one, 
the most popular episode of the state of sales enablement in 22 is sales methodologies with Aaron Evans. Aaron, for those of you who are not familiar, a consultant in the sales coaching and sales methodology space, he's extremely familiar with all the sales methodologies that are out there. He also runs a YouTube channel where he discusses different sales methodologies in all details. So Aaron's episode has been the most popular episode this year. So for anybody who's keen to understand sales methodologies more on a meta level and understand how to pick the best sales methodology for your business, please make sure to listen to that one as well. Now, we're almost at the end of this episode. It is the last one for 2022. So first of all, thank you everybody who's been supporting this month in sales enablement and my business, FFWD, this year. It's been a blast and I feel like the sales enablement community is just moving closer and closer together and growing together. And I really appreciate that I have been able to play a part in that as well. And to wrap things off, we want to share a poem with you <laughs> rather unexpectedly. I don't think anybody who's listening to this episode would have expected to hear a poem from us <laughs> this time around, but I have to disappoint you. Unfortunately, it is not written by Devin or I. It was written by ChatGPT, the artificial intelligence system that is much, much smarter than I expected. So let's take a listen and Devin, take it away. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The sales team was nestled all snug in their beds while visions of quotas danced in their heads. But up in the office, a team was at work enabling the sales force with tools and with perks. They set up the CRM and tested the demo and practiced their pitches all in a row. The sales enablement manager sat at her desk, reviewing the data and taking a rest. She knew that come morning, the team would be ready to close deals and hit targets all steady and steady. So here's to the sales enablement crew who work hard all year to help the sales team renew. Merry Christmas to all and to all good night from the sales enablement team, all dressed in white. Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you yes. so much for joining again. I'm looking forward to 2023. Thank you, Devin, for joining once again. And I hope to speak to you soon. Bye-bye from the State of Sales Enablement podcast with this month in Sales Enablement.